Good day and welcome to the T-Mobile Sprint Regulatory Update Conference Call. Today's conference is being recorded. This time I would like to turn the conference over to Ethan Lacey. Please go ahead, sir. Uh, hi, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Ethan Lacey, and I do TMT Specialty Sales at New Street. I want to thank everyone for joining us today for our T-Mobile Sprint Regulatory Update Call. We appreciate you all coming on. Again, very last minute, similar to our Monday call, but obviously the situation has been extremely fluid, and like you all, we've been keeping our heads on a swivel as much as possible as the facts on the ground change. From New Street on the call today, we have Blair Levin and Jonathan Chaplin. Uh, as always, the more interactive, the better. There will be no slides for this call. There were two notes out today which were included in the invite. Uh, if you have any questions, please feel free to send any uh, of those questions through over email. Blair, obviously, uh, if you don't know him, he's our TMT regulatory analyst, the former FCC chief of staff and author of the National Broadband Plan, and Jonathan Chaplin covers U.S. cable telco for us at New Street. And always, as always with these calls, Blair is probably a great place to start, so Blair, I'm going to hand it over to you. Great. So I think the right way for investors to think about it is we're now, uh, there's a three-step process to getting to the end. Step number one, making Dory, he has to decide what he wants to do. Once he decides, it is likely, and this is somewhat unique, there are many things that are unique, but uh, we're, going to, we're likely to go to court. If he decides to go along with what is the apparent staff recommendation, the DOJ and the states will together go to court to block a closing of the deal. If he decides to join with the FCC and allow the deal to go forward, then the question is, uh, do the states independently sue to block the deal? And then the third thing will be, what does the court do in either event? We can go through the you know, different odds, but as to the last two, they're so dependent on the first. So I'm just going to focus quickly on that one and then turn it over to Jonathan, because I think you know, one person in this particular case dramatically affects the odds of the court battle. Uh, and by the way, it's not 100% certain that either the states will bring an action or that the companies will, though I think the companies are highly likely to. And it's very not, it's really not clear who the judge would be. So, but let's, let's get to the court question today. What does Delahim do? As we talked about in our note, when, when we got the news Monday, the logical assumption was that this was part of a plan between TMO, the FCC, and the Justice Department to essentially provide Macon Delrahim some cover to say yes. And there's certainly been a lot of speculation rumors about that. But when you see the Bloomberg story that came out on Monday and then you see today's, you have to say, well, maybe that's not the case. And maybe what was really going on was the uh, T-Mobile realized it was not winning at the DOJ, and in a way to put political pressure on Delrahim, decided to go this route. And, and in the note, we focused on the messaging element because that, to me, told us what, what, their, what they were kind of thinking about how to move to a positive outcome from their point of view. So it, I, I have no particularly great insight into what Del Rahim will do. It does seem that the staff is against it. I could um, articulate very reason, a number of reasons he might say yes. I can articulate reasons he might say no. Where I am today is not where I might be tomorrow, but I think he's slightly more likely to join the staff recommendation than to join the FCC. But I, I don't have a high level of confidence, and I think it's that, that part's a close call. 
And I will just close by saying that whatever outcome you put on the trial, the DOJ team, whatever team they're on, that is the team that is pretty heavily favored to win in court, in my opinion. And with that, let me turn it over to Jonathan, and then we can just go right to questions. Before I comment, I just got a, a quick question for you. So during the study day period where Del Rahim is making up his mind, is he making up his mind on a static set of facts, or is there an opportunity for discussions between him and the companies on additional conditions? Uh, it's absolutely uh, – anything can happen, and there are a number of facts that might be indicators to us, such as, you know, hiring outside counsel that might be an indicator. There are extraneous events like a Donald Trump tweet that might affect it, so I think at this point that's really complicated. But certainly there can be continuing conversations. What I can't figure out, and we talked about this a little bit in the note, is – are there conditions that the companies could offer him that would be attractive enough for him to say, well, as I'm not, a, whereas I'm consistent with my staff view that the D, that the FCC conditions were not sufficient, I now have gained a new condition that really is sufficient. You know, we, we've talked a lot about that, Jonathan, and we've written a bunch about different conditions, but I don't think, for example, is saying, if the price freeze goes to five years, then I'm okay. That doesn't sound right to me, but there might be other conditions that would lead him to be able to hold his head high from an antitrust perspective and yet go ahead with, go along with the FCC. So what I find interesting in the reporting, in the, in the Bloomberg story yesterday, uh, sorry, the day before yesterday, and then the Wall Street Journal story in the morning, the way the source appears to have positioned the DOJ's objection is they're, they're not satisfied with the conditions that have been offered up so far, which seem to open up the, an opportunity for, for sort of additional conditions uh, or, or conditions that are greater in magnitude than the ones that have been offered up so far that could get, that, that could get the, the process across the goal line. We certainly ordered that same thing. We talked to a lot of the folks about what those conditions would be. The starting question is, is the DOJ saying uh, that the market that they're concerned about is the prepaid market or is it the overall wireless services market going from four to three? If it's just the prepaid market, there certainly are a lot of things you could do in terms of the boost spinoff or a spinoff of more, you know, spinoff of some network assets or whatever to strengthen that entity that then competes for the prepaid customer. But that's not the impression that I got from the Reuters story this morning, which was suggesting that they're concerned about the broader uh, market. Okay, and then it's so, a lot tougher to get a condition. So with that as, as background, my comment would be is, as to what Del Rahim is about to do, I think it's, it's as, as Blair articulates, very difficult to do, very difficult to guess. And as that sort of plays out for the companies, it doesn't matter all that much to our positioning on T-Mobile 
because we think there's a compelling equity story whether the deal goes through or not. And so we, despite all of the uncertainty swelling around this situation, we're comfortable owning T-Mobile. There's not a lot of upside to our valuation if the deal doesn't go through, but there is upside. And there's very meaningful upside if the deal does go through. And so the way we look at it is you've got sort of a free option on the great scenarios. And it doesn't really matter that much whether you think there's a 20% probability of $100 outcome or an 80% probability of a $100 outcome. Since it's free and we'll have a a very good idea of what the answer is in 30 days, um, it makes sense to own to own T-Mobile. With Sprint, it's a lot more challenging with the stock back up towards seven bucks. You've got very considerable downside and still considerable upside if the deal goes through. Uh, but much more, much more binary. And given that you can play the situation through, through T-Mobile, which is much easier, um, it made us just inclined to move out, move to the sidelines on on Sprint. The, in terms of the, the outcomes here, I, I think there probably is an opportunity for a, a middle ground, for a deal that gets approved with concessions that are greater than the ones that the FCC has agreed to with the parties. It's just difficult without knowing the specifics of the DOJ staff complaint what those concessions would need to be. We've looked at concessions, we sort of break concessions into two different categories. There's the ones that matter for the value of the company, um, and then there are other concessions that matter for a whole host of reasons that don't materially impact the value of the company. And so if you look at the concessions agreed to with the FCC, the prepaid divestiture matters for the value of the company. The commitments to build out on 5G, home broadband in rural markets, price cap for three years, and, and all of the other conditions don't have any impact on the value of the company. They were things we either assumed in our base case, it was always part of the T-Mobile plan, or it's the extent that they, they're new, they, they, they don't have a material impact on pricing, market share, margins, free cash flow, or anything else. So with, with that as a backdrop, we sort of looked at three different different kinds of conditions that might work depending on what the what the complaint is at the DOJ. One was remedies in and around prepaid, divesting prepaid, and we sort of looked at at scenarios there and the impact it would have on value. And in a in a just a divestiture of boost, we think it probably saps about a dollar's worth of value from the deal, which in the grand scheme of things is fairly insignificant. And then you could ratchet up that value depending on how much more onerous you want to make a prepaid condition. The next category we looked at was spectrum divestitures. And here, selling spectrum to AT&T and Verizon does nothing for curing competitive harms. You'd have to divest spectrum to somebody like cable um, um, or some other new entrant. And because... Therefore, the spectrum divestiture would be an, an, an sort of an inefficient sale, an inefficient for sale with a smaller number of buyers. You would assume value leakage, and we looked at scenarios of 20, 40, and 60 megahertz being sold. 
We think the the most likely would be 40 megahertz. We think the companies would probably walk away from a requirement to, to, to divest 60 megahertz, or at least the prospect of them walking away goes way up. And really difficult to know in an inefficient transaction what the spectrum would fetch, but we, we see value leakage there in addition to the value leakage from the the prepaid divestiture that has been agreed to with the with the FCC, but it's still probably well within the seven billion dollars that the the companies have outlined. And then the third category we looked at was just a much more onerous condition where the companies merge, um, uh, but spin out all of Sprint as a as an MDNO. The value leakage there is much greater. You would book the four billion dollars a year in network synergies that lose $2 billion a year in SG&A synergies. From our perspective, still very very much a deal worth doing. You preserve the bulk of the $43 billion of synergies, and we've always thought that $43 billion of synergies was understated. The value leakage there is, to, is, is somewhere around $17 billion, so well above the $7 billion that the, com- that the companies have articulated is their, is, is their walk away. From our perspective, it doesn't actually make sense to walk away from the, res- the, the residual synergy value. That's full value over and above the standalone value of the companies. But what it probably means is the consideration that Sprint gets has to be adjusted. And the, I, I would just finish off by saying we saw sort of looked at extreme versions of concessions in each one of these categories, it's not clear that the companies would have to go all the way to this extreme version in any one of these scenarios. But what we've articulated is an extreme set of conditions that we think is still in the interest of the company. It would certainly cure categories of harm, depending on what the the DOJ is focused on, may well get the deal across the, the goal line. It, it, it then comes down to whether T-Mobile would go as far as we think they ought to on concessions and whether these categories of concessions would actually cure the harm that the, that the DOJ has identified. And that's where, where the unknowns are. And with that, I'll turn it over to questions. Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you're using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Again, press star 1 to ask a question. And maybe just while we're waiting, uh, I've got a couple already from the field. And again, if anyone wants to send uh, questions to me, you can at ethan.lacy at newstreetresearch.com. Blair, question for you, at least initially, is is just your thoughts in terms of TMS sort of uh, and, and the workaround of using the FCC to pressure the DOJ. Yeah, how do you think about that in terms of potential for it to backfire specifically to Del Rahim and sort of what how what the view what view he may have of them sort of changing the timeline uh, of approval or changing the process uh, of approval? Just how divergent well, I, I, are we from normal course? Are we? Uh, we're we are so far from normal course. <laughs> we have really jumped the shark, as they say in Hollywood. Uh, and, and in the piece this morning, you know, there were a number of things which I regard as being deviant from normal, but there are others I could have mentioned. Look, there there are two different scenarios. One is that he was in on the game all along, and there were some mumblings to that effect. 
there are some other indicators that where he was aware that they were talking to the FCC. It was only on Friday that he was told that the FCC was going to make the announcement Monday. I suspect any person who had that job at the DOJ would be outraged uh, in a couple of different ways, one, one by kind of the timing, but a second, the, the nature of uh, the chairman's comments. I'm not making a substantive point. I'm simply saying it, it basically says, look, we have two big priorities at the FCC, 5G and rural um, deployment, and we get them both. You know, you, you DOJ, have a nice day. There was no kind of like, the DOJ has a different mandate. They're, they, their view of the competition issues is important to us, et cetera. There was, there was none of that. So I, I suspect that um, there is a, a significant amount of resentment. However, I don't know that at the end of the day, you know, when emotions calm down and when egos move, that that's actually material. I think that um, I am not sure what is going to motivate Del Rahim at the end of the day to make the decision he makes, but I doubt it's going to be personal pike or anger. He will decide on some other grounds. And I think that part of the effort by T-Mobile and the FCC was to essentially corral him into looking at this through that kind of policy slash political lens of getting 5G and rural broadband deployment which I think most people would agree is a high priority for the FCC and the administration, but not really relevant to the consideration under the Clayton Act of whether this transaction is substantially likely to harm competition. Got it. And uh, I have quite a few more, but I'll, I'll just see if there's any uh, on the uh, phone lines. Operator? We do have a question from Drew Sigor, AIG Advisors. Hi, it's actually Cecile. Um, thanks again for taking my call. I appreciate these these calls. So I wanted to understand, Jonathan, were you saying that it was going to take 20 to 60 megahertz to solve? Is that the prepaid boost problem, the needing of spectrum? So um, we look at three, three different categories of, of divestiture. One is divesting prepaid. The other one is divesting spectrum. And the third would be divesting all of Sprint. And I really think of them as being designed to solve different problems that the, that the DOJ might have. Since the companies have already agreed to the best boost with the FCC, I presume that that concession remains in place. And so if they're divesting spectrum, it's over and above divesting, divesting boost. So those two, if they're divesting spectrum, it's spectrum and boost but they're really designed to solve different problems. Got it. Okay. Um, and then here's my question about um, the rural build-out. The states are saying that that's insufficient because with the fine that or however this is a bond or fine or whatever that would be paid, it's not enough to guarantee that they're going to actually do the build-out, and it's the build-out they need, not the fine. Any response from either of you on that, that aspect? So uh, just a quick comment for me, and I think Blair probably has thoughts as well, but the, if, if the fine isn't large enough, what would be interesting is if that described the, the, the DOJ's dissatisfaction with 
the set of conditions that the FCC has agreed to, because if it did, it would seem that it would be relatively easy to fix. Um, the DOJ could tell T-Mobile that they're willing to approve the deal with a greater fine if they don't meet their build-out commitments. Um, if T-Mobile is sincere about the build-out commitments, which I actually think they probably are, they probably won't have too much problem with that kind of a enhanced condition, and this thing can close and we can be on 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 our on our merry way. I suspect this case isn't going to turn on that though. Um, whether the that, that, that probably isn't going to be the issue that the the, that the DHA is hung up on. Um, and if it goes to court with the with the state suing, it's probably not going to be resolved around the the the, the magnitude of the fine. I think what Blair would probably say is building out in rural. Uh, to address all the deficiencies in the broadband market uh, does nothing to address concentration of the market and the reduction of competition in the wireless market needs a separate market. But Blair, I'd, uh, I'd hand it over to you. That's exactly what I would say. <laughs> and I would just note that the Reuters article this morning said DOJ staff is concerned that a merger would result in T-Mobile not competing as hard against Verizon and uh, AT&T, and that's our concern, and that was certainly the, the concentration concern that motivated the Justice Department to file a complaint against the 2011 AT&T T-Mobile deal. The rule build out is irrelevant to that. Right. I'm just trying to figure out how, how much oh, we're That's okay. Sorry. Thanks. Sorry, go ahead. I, what was the question? Oh, no, I was just saying thank you. Okay. No worries. Great. Operator, any other questions on the phone lines? Our next question comes from Xing Yin, Citadel. Hey, guys. Uh, I also want to thank hey, you for doing this, Paul. Hey, I've, uh, I've already put in my calendar to dial in tomorrow at the same time for your update tomorrow. <laughs> 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 hey, I, I guess I just wanted Where to was. ask about today's, uh, today's news. You know, the Reuters article, I guess, I guess it sounds like, you know, the staff have maybe progressed a little bit from, you know, previously being resistant to the deal to now actually having made a recommendation. Just wanted to get your, your sense on, is there any significance to that? I mean, you know, does that, you know, should we infer from that that, you know, has the staff, has the staff kind of considered their analysis to be done? Are they done, you know, negotiating with the companies? Are they done with data requests? Like, you know, does the fact that they've gotten to a point where they're making a recommendation, does that, does that signify, you know, that they're, they're, they consider themselves done with the analysis? So let me let me start by saying I, I think they've been done with data collection for roughly speaking at least uh, two to four weeks. Uh, Del Joaquin, when he was at the Milken conference, said we're still waiting on some information. But frankly, I, I, when I talked to the parties, they didn't really know what he was talking about there. So I, I, I think we're roughly done. My interpretation is that the recommendation um, may have been accelerated by the FCC decision, but that, that 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 the Wall Street Journal story of three weeks ago that was was fundamentally correct, and the DOJ staff was telling the companies, we have a problem with your deal is currently structured. Of course, we don't know what's in the recommendation, and we don't know what the core issues are. We just know that it's it's blocking. It would be under the normal course of business, perfectly acceptable to have the companies come in and say, here are some conditions 
to address your concerns. I would guess, but I'm certainly not sure, that the DOJ staffs, in a way, was saying to the FCC, oh, you want to you wanna play ball this way? Okay, we'll play ball, we'll play ball the same way then, uh, which is to say that you're, you're now going to get into a series of things where the DOJ, you know, the, F, the FCC basically was going out and selling the deal all day Monday on cable channels, and the DOJ staff does not, can't, is not going to play that game, but they are going to essentially signal that the FCC analysis is highly deficient in terms of how it addresses the competitive issue. And, and I would just say the DOJ staff and the FCC staff will work very closely in this as they have on every other deal. And one of the things that makes it so remarkable is you, you, you have after a year one the leadership of one of the entities essentially not, not just going ahead with their own view, but going ahead when their own staff has not yet written up the document. You have three votes for a, an item for which um, they haven't read the analysis of their own staff. It's kind of rather extraordinary in that way. And I think the DOJ staff is kind of reacting to what they, what they undoubtedly view as a real political um, kind of judgment, not a antitrust kind of judgment. Great. Very helpful. Thanks. If you would like to ask a question, please press star one now. I've got uh, a few more I just would like to get through, and I think we're going to lose Jonathan before we lose Blair here because he's uh, he's marketing on the West Coast. But, Jonathan, one that came in was uh, at what exchange ratio do you think Sprint would walk if Temis did indeed try to ratchet down the exchange ratio? Is is there a multiple, or does Sprint have, you know, real really not have any leverage in renegotiation in your view? So, Ethan, our, our view is the odds of Sprint restructuring in the next three or four years if the deal doesn't go through are very, very high. And so I don't think they've got a tremendous amount of leverage in uh, in a renegotiation. And by the way, I don't think a renegotiation of, of the exchange ratio has to be all that onerous. It would be, you know, we, we struck this deal based on a view of synergies that it was $43 billion. We've lost X billion, uh, and so we have to adjust the exchange ratio to reflect that. But it's, it's, I think the, the real answer is Sprint doesn't have a tremendous amount of leverage that any version of this deal is better than standalone Sprint. I would caveat that with we've seen some fairly unpredictable negotiating tactics from Massa in the past. So he, it seems like a lifetime ago that he got very close to structuring a deal with T-Mobile that was better than the deal he has today, stormed out of the 11th hour in disgust, um, marched around from company to company looking for alternatives, and ultimately came back a few months later and accepted a worse deal than he was offered a, a few months before. And, and, and so he has an unusual negotiating strategy. And so I can't say I have any confidence in, in how SoftBank would actually deal with an adjustment of the, an adjustment of the, the exchange ratio if it, if it came to that. But I'm, I'm going into the analysis with a view that 
any version of this deal is is better than the status quo. That's great. That's helpful. And Jonathan, if you have to drop, uh, I'm going to uh, pivot over to Blair. But if you have to drop, that's uh, totally all right. I think uh, Vivek is also dialed in on, on uh, and can answer any other uh, questions after this. Um, Blair, uh, one that we've gotten quite a few of is just timing questions. You know, the Reuters article had talked about um, a month, I believe. Uh, obviously, the shot clock ends on June 3rd. Pi had mentioned in coming weeks. You know, uh, any view as to sort of why that one month number was, you know, out there in, in the press and any thoughts around timing would be helpful? Yeah, first of all, the FCC clock is irrelevant and always has been. I would have expected the Reuters article to say a couple of weeks, Delahim is giving himself more time. I don't know what Delahim is waiting for. That is to say, if he wants to talk about conditions, they'll be in his office in 10 minutes, right? If he wants to, uh, otherwise, he just wants to make up his decision. He's had the data points for a while. I, like, I might note, Delahim was unusual in that he sat in on a lot more meetings uh, involving this deal, and this is what I'm being told, than other folks. So, you know, it's not like he's getting this memo and it's something new and fresh for him. He's been well aware of this and has been following this closely. But having said that, you know, there are many different things on his agenda, and he is just giving himself more time. I actually expect it to be in the next couple of weeks, not to take a month, but there is no clock ticking. As we noted in the piece this morning, there is a Hart-Scott-Rodino provision which says the companies can certify compliance with uh, the second request from the DOJ, and that triggers a 30-day clock in which the, the DOJ either has to file a complaint or the companies are allowed to close. The, I, I, don't, I don't believe the companies have certified that, but they, they may have, and there may be a clock ticking on that. But in any event, I, I think that in the grand scheme of things, whether it's two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, or tomorrow, that's not really the most important thing. The important thing is which way does he go? Right, and then I think the another common question we've had today is just sort of focusing, since so much at this point would appear to uh, of the outcome would appear to be in, or basically all of it would appear to be in Delrahim's hands. Do we have any view on what his career aspirations are, or how those might <laughs> factor into a decision that he makes? Well, I. I'm, I'm really um, troubled by the fact that I have to um, answer such questions. I mean, I'm not blaming anyone for asking them. I'm just saying I don't know the man. I have, I don't know what his aspirations are, but I'm going to make some guesses. But, you know, it can be going so many different ways. He, he certainly at one point was trying to get different jobs such as White House Counsel and even Attorney General. But I think given his relationship with Barr, he probably views his likelihood of, well, in bars, of course, the president's favorite cabinet member at this moment in time. But he probably views uh, any future uh, high-level government uh, lawyering job as not, not in the cards for now. So my guess is he's probably thinking he wants to go back to Los Angeles and head the antitrust group of one of the large Los Angeles-based law firms or a firm with a big office in Los Angeles or something like that. And, you know, reasonable minds can differ as to what the right strategy is. But but there's an assumption there that he's going to be driven in that decision by a kind of future consideration. And I don't – I hesitate 
to make that about someone I don't know. But I will simply note that the value to outsiders is are you respected by the DOJ staff and the staffs of the state attorney generals? Because if you're in the antitrust bar, that's kind of who you're working with. Sometimes you're on their side, sometimes you're not. But any lawyer knows it's not black and white. You're not, it's not like Democrats and Republicans. You can be adverse to somebody, but the real question is, do they respect what you're saying? Do they, are they open to you? That would argue for going along with staff. On the other hand, there was considerable, you know, Ajit and the Wall Street Journal and kind of there's a certain conservative point of view which says, why not get, why should we stand in the way of companies that want to merge? So I, I don't know that that's a, other people may have better insight, but I'm not sure that's a, that fruitful an area of inquiry unless you know a lot more about the person than I do. Got it. And then uh, only because you mentioned it, we, there was a number of questions on state AGs. I, I guess one, you know, just being why haven't we heard anything from the state AGs yet? And two, I know there was a meeting between the DOJ and the state AGs. If you have any view on what the meaning of, of or importance of that meeting was, would be appreciated. Sure. So why haven't we heard more from the state AGs? Why should we hear it? I mean, I think the state AGs have been working very closely with the DOJ staff. It now appears obvious that the DO, that the states were believing that the DOJ staff was going to recommend a, a blocking it, and, and there's no reason for them to say anything. The second point I'd note is there was a lot of discussion a few months ago, and Del Rahim apparently blasted the state AGs for leaking, and so maybe they decided they didn't have anything to say. There is no reason for them to say anything until, um, until there's a Del Rahim decision. There are reasons to prepare for any eventuality, and as we've reported and as the public, there have been other reports that they have hired um, leading economists uh, and others to prepare for litigation. As to what the meeting was about, there are two interpretations. First would be the DOJ staff went to the state in an effort to say, are there any conditions we could obtain that would cause you to cease and desist from any efforts to litigate this? If I was Del Rahim, one of the things that would concern me most is if I go with the FCC and the state sue and they win, then my career will be defined by two extraordinary losses, first with AT&T, a deal I tried to block where I lost, and second with this, a deal I let go and a court said, no, under the Clayton Act, you should have blocked it. That, you know, that probably is riding on his, his mind, and so... That scenario is a certain, certainly a plausible one. I think the more plausible one is that they met to discuss litigation resources and strategies. I, I would just note, as we discussed in the note, that it's plausible that the DOJ thought that the FCC would be joined at the hip, as they have been on every other transaction the two have ever done. So that if the DOJ says no, the FCC then also says no and sends it to an administrative law judge. The, probably the most significant thing that happened was the FCC signal, they're definitely not doing that. That's a big deal and a real benefit to the deal because it means the companies get to go to court immediately upon a DOJ decision uh, blocking them, if that's what the decision is. And then, you know, they have, you can argue about what the odds will be. Uh, I think the DOJ and the states would have would, would be the uh, favored party 
but it a lot depends on who the judge is. Uh, and so um, it could be that the DOJ had not been anticipating litigating and now finds themselves in a situation where, you know, within a few months they might find themselves in court. So what do they do? That's why I slightly favor that interpretation. Okay. I've had a, a lot of questions on scenario analysis, and you were kind of just walking through some of them, but can we just do sort of a rapid fire just to be clear who we think? Yeah, you did the rapid win. fire, and then in three minutes I've got to run. Okay. All right. This might be a good place to end then. So DOJ blocks, yeah. company sues, who wins? The DOJ in the States, I would give them, roughly speaking, a 75% chance of winning in court. But okay. we DOJ. completely reassess when we know the judge. DOJ approves state AGs sue. Who wins? Probably the companies in the DOJ. Slightly less odds. I'd go with 65. Again, completely to be reassessed when you see the judge. Okay. And are there any other, I guess, obviously DOJ blocks, companies don't sue, deals done. Are there any other scenarios? Yeah. Other any scenario, other scenarios that we should think the, of? Yeah. Yeah. The DOJ uh, goes with the FCC and the states decide not to sue. I think those are the four basic scenarios. Okay. And then last question for you. Last question for you, uh, Blair. If Barr recused himself, who who else in the administration do we think that way he might be talking to? Oh, he might be talking to anybody, but um, Delaheen is the decision maker here. You know, but look, Donald Trump can tweet anything he wants, obviously. I think a Trump tweet may influence him at this point. I think it's actually harder at this point because of the public know because the public knows what the staff recommendation is. I also think that would encourage the states to sue. So there's um and, and it might also influence the judge. I think it's a very complicated situation. But it's it's, it's similar to having the FCC move first. Uh there's definitely positive things to it. There's a, certainly a risk of it backfiring. Okay. Well, with okay. all of my speakers gone, I think that's probably a great place to wrap up the call. Blair, thank you so much for jumping on. Thank and you. Obviously, we appreciate everybody for sending in your questions. For those of you who we didn't get to, you know, please reach out, and we can uh, take any further questions offline. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's teleconference. You may now disconnect.